0: Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, it often takes such a little change to, to totally make something confusing. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you get just a little bit of a, of a tweak on something and the idea can radically change. Uh, the comedian, Dimitri Martin, illustrates this. He, he takes popular sayings, he removes one letter from one word, and he, he just notices how the expression has taken on a whole new meaning. And so I wanna share a few of these with you. I'll start the original expression, you finish it, and then I'll show you what Dimitri does Is he takes out one letter of one of the words. And so first expression is this. If you can't beat them, join them. You take one letter away and you get. If you can't eat them, Join them. Little strange how that completely changes to a little bit morbid uh, of of a saying. How about this? A stitch in time saves nine, which, when you think about it, is a really weird expression. Uh, But it's an expression, nonetheless, and if you take a letter away, you get a stitch in Tim saves nine. Sorry, Tim. Thanks for taking one for the team. Uh, Or how about this one? Truth is stranger than fiction. You take one letter away, you get... Ruth is stranger than fiction. Ruth is clearly from Portland, and uh, and it makes sense, you know? (laughs) Sorry if your name is Tim or Ruth. Uh, I wanna welcome you to Abundant Life Church. Uh, We're so glad that you're here today on, you know, however you got here, wherever you are watching or listening, those who are online or through a podcast, so glad that you are here as well. I wanna ask the question today, have you ever felt like Christianity was missing a letter? Like there's this expression that everyone else knew, but when you got to it, you're like, that just seems a bit off. It doesn't quite make sense to me. Uh, just a little tweak sometimes can really spin us out, and that's what we've been talking about throughout this series. Now, if you're with us, we're going through week three of Finding Jesus in Christianity. If you've got a journal that you've brought back with you, I encourage you to get that out and go to week three. You'll see a spot to take notes there like we do each week, and if not, you can get something to write notes with, and, and hopefully I give you some ideas to encourage you to process with you and Jesus this week. And, And maybe you and your life group, we're in week three and and then in our Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter one. And so if you've got a physical Bible with you today, uh, that's in the New Testament. I'll give you a few moments to get there. If you've got a Bible app on a phone or device, you can get that out as well. And we'll be reading from that in just a moment. We've been talking throughout this series about how Christianity is changing today, how the conversation around Christianity is changing, even those of us who call ourselves Christians, how, how we're trying to figure out what is it that this is really all about. And, and we've been talking about how many people, uh, they leave it for any number of reasons, and they have experienced it, and then they walk away. And, and I was thinking this week about something that the author Daniel Taylor said. He said, I find that many don't lose faith or leave faith so much as stagnate in some feeble version of faith. Now, if you're with me in week one of this series, I shared some uh, prominent Christian leaders who had left Christianity and, and why they left. And, and so you think about those stories, but, but I also think he's onto something that, that there's just this feeble version of faith that, that many Christians have, and they're not quite sure what this is all about. They're not quite sure uh, really what to base their, their Christianity on. And, and before long, you can just feel stagnant if you don't really understand what, what, what's the point of all of this and and maybe you've considered walking away as well. Now we wanna be confident in what we believe and and if we think something is true, we wanna have a a confidence in that truth and and that's why for a lot of people, uh, it works really well to put your confidence in the Bible. Because the Bible is easy to place your confidence in. It's, it's a finite book. It's not going to change. So you can learn it. You can memorize it. You can better understand it. And, and it's always going to be waiting for you on the shelf. And so anytime you want to go to the Bible, you can rip that puppy out and you can go right to it. And it will be there for you. And a lot of Christians develop a confidence in this. But if you've been with us in this series, I've encouraged us not just to put our confidence in the Bible, but in what the Bible is pointing us to, Which is the person of Jesus. Now, if you try to put your confidence in the person of Jesus, you notice it's a little bit more challenging. Jesus isn't finite, Jesus is is infinite, right? And and Jesus isn't waiting for you on your shelf. Uh, And so you gotta figure out what's Jesus up to? What's what's Jesus doing right now? And and it's not quite as easy to to develop a, a sense of confidence in Jesus as it is in in the Bible itself. But as we've seen throughout this series, we're trying to figure out what's the right order of how do we make sense of all these things and how do we follow Jesus today? Now, the premise that we've been basing this this whole series on is uh, an idea from Andy Stanley. And he says this, we must tether the faith of this generation to the event that sparked the movement that brought us the Bible. And so we read the Bible every week here. We study the Bible. We've been unpacking the Bible because we're part of the movement that has inherited this, that, that you know we have, have accepted this faith from those who have gone before us, and they started it because of an event that took place. Now, if you have read Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible, as a number of you have, uh, you know that Stanley really focuses the event on the resurrection. Now, this is where I see it a bit different because I think you can't just you know, get to the resurrection before you've really stared at the crucifixion, that the event I, I think should be thought of as a two-sided coin. It is both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And taken together, they form the event that helps you understand who Jesus is, which ultimately sparked the movement that brought us the Bible today. Now you might think, well, why does it matter uh, how we parse this out? Why does it matter you know, where we really uh, find our confidence in all of this? And here's what I would say, is that where we place our confidence, is where we get our power. Now, you might not have ever connected these ideas together, but I can illustrate this in a number of ways. Whatever we are confident in is where we often derive our power. If you are confident in your own abilities, right, you will feel powerful whenever you are able to solve a problem without needing help from anyone else. You will feel powerful because my confidence is in myself, in my own ability. But uh, if you can't solve a problem, or this is uh, uh, one, let's say your health suddenly uh, takes a turn or you have that doctor's visit that doesn't go the way you planned. If your confidence is in your own ability and you get that bill of health that's not quite what you were hoping for, you will feel your power diminish. That's how it works, because they are linked together. If you put your confidence in your family, uh, then you will feel powerful whenever your kids succeed. And so if your kids do well, you feel powerful. I'm a great part of this family. But if your kids struggle or if a relationship in your family becomes strained, all of a sudden you start to feel less powerful because that is what you put your confidence in. If your, excuse me, your confidence is in your career, you will feel powerful when you get that promotion, when you get that raise and you'll feel, I am on top of all of it. But if you get passed up, or you get let go, or, or something doesn't play out in your career, all of a sudden you feel the power go away. If your confidence is in your checking account, you will feel powerful as the number grows. And as you know, you can rely on it, and you know, this could get me through anything. But if your checking account takes a turn, or you have some unforeseen expenses that, that deplete it, all of a sudden, your power begins to erode. And we all deal with this in all aspects of our life on a regular basis. And here's what we got to admit before we move on, is that all of us, if we're honest, uh, secretly crave more confidence and more power. We just naturally want more of this, myself included. And if left to ourselves, we would accumulate as much power, and as much confidence as we could, because that makes us feel comfortable. It makes us feel confident. Now, uh, we are drawn to sources of power because we crave this. And so think about the movies that you love, the stories that you love the most. Probably it was a powerful protagonist that you went, yes, I connect with that, that brought something out in you that you, you can really relate with. And, and this is so, uh, you know, such a thing that we can feel connection to very strange things because of our allure to power. Now, I wanna show you a little video of a very unlikely source of power, but I want you to just notice how you feel about this animal uh, as you watch this video and as you see the power that this animal has. Check this out.
1: In the middle of the Sonoran Desert, this mother grasshopper mouse tends to her pups. While tiny and adorable, don't be mistaken, this is not your common house mouse. From the day they are born, these mice are natural killers. It regularly takes on prey as large or larger than itself. Making the grasshopper mouse even more of a standout is its immunity to scorpion venom. Not only can it withstand the typically deadly stings, its body has adapted to convert the toxins into a painkiller. After a scorpion, a giant centipede might seem easy. However, these centipedes are venomous. A pocket mouse has already fallen victim to its toxins. The grasshopper mouse isn't intimidated. This time, the trick up its sleeve isn't immunity, but agility. It uses its quick reflexes to avoid the venom from the centipede's fangs. Before it enjoys another fresh kill, the mouse proclaims its territory. By howling, the mouse throws its head back and lets out a high-pitched cry into the night sky, giving it the nickname of werewolf mouse. Come on, is that not
0: the coolest mouse you have ever seen? I mean, there's nothing, you see that little mouse, you're not thinking, apex predator, you know, this thing is is on the hunt. No, you look at that and you would think, oh, that cute little guy. And yet that cute little guy is ready for business, you know, and I love, just like I was watching the video. So it has turned the scorpion venom into a painkiller. Like how tough are you if that, like that's the best you got, now I'm immune to you. I mean, it's just like amazing little powerful creature. And I confess, there's something I'm just drawn to about that little guy. You go, wow, that's amazing because There's such power even in an unexpected place. Now, when we come to to this whole idea of Christianity, we go, okay, so we understand that we all, as humans, we desire power, we crave power. How do we build our confidence then in the right thing as Christians? So if we're going to follow Christ, how do we know, how do we build our confidence so that the power we all get, and we all use power no matter what context you're in, how do we know how to use it the right way based on where we're placing our confidence? Well if you're with me in 1st Corinthians chapter 1 I wanna show you just a beautiful passage, a beautiful argument that the Apostle Paul makes. And, and this is someone who had, who had met Jesus face to face. He had, he had uh, seen uh, all the other disciples. He had talked to them about what they had seen. He was incredibly instrumental in the rise of the movement of the early church. And I want you to just listen to his logic as he talks about uh, what Jesus means to him and as he explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Verse 18 is where we'll begin. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now just stop there and just process that. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? If you and I want to follow Jesus today and we want to say, okay, God, we want your wisdom. What that means then, if you follow Paul's logic here, is that your ideas should sound crazy to someone who doesn't follow Jesus. If someone else is going to, hey, explain to me what you put your faith in, and you were to explain it to them, it should sound a bit off to them, like, wait, what? And if it doesn't, you don't have the wisdom that Paul's talking about here, the wisdom that comes from God. You have worldly wisdom, which many Christians are fine with. But I would suggest if we understand what Paul is saying here, Paul's going, look, that's not good enough. You need the wisdom that comes from God, and that's going to sound a bit foolish to the world. And so you're going, okay, how do we makes sense of all this, And, and Paul goes on. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, notice this, but we preach Christ crucified, which if you think about it, is a very strange thing to focus your preaching on our message is Jesus dying on a cross. Like, why, why would like, why would you focus on that, Paul? Why, why would you zoom in on that one moment? Why, why would that be the thing that you preach? And he says this, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, when when God's being silly, that's wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God, which is just hard to wrap your mind around, what is God's weakness? But that would be stronger than human strength, Paul says. So Paul is talking about this weird dichotomy of like, if you wanna understand the way God works, you've gotta look at things upside down. And if you look at them the same way the rest of the world looks at them, then it's just not gonna make sense to you. This is why I think you know, we should not rush to the resurrection as the event because the resurrection, if all that's what you had, it looks like what the world has. You know, It's victory, it's, it's celebration. Yes, the good guy won. But until you get the crucifixion part of that, you go, well, that's really bizarre. That, that's really weird that God could be killed by his own creation. What does that tell us? Now, if you're writing things down, here's what I encourage you to write down. The cross shows us the clearest picture of the character of God. See, this is what the resurrection can't really offer you. The resurrection is is why, you know, it's like the, the justification of all this. But really, when you wanna understand the character of God, you look to the cross and you go, wow, I've never seen another God in any other world religion like this God. I've never heard God talked about like this, that this God went to a cross and died on it. That's the message we're gonna preach. As as Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. This is a very unique understanding of the character of God. And for many people, it looks like foolishness. Maybe we'll go, why would you preach that message? Skip over that. Move beyond that. Why would you focus on your God Dying. That makes no sense. That looks like losing. You see, that was the moment, if you could have been there with all the disciples, when they probably sat there and went, you know what? Last three years of our life, wasted. Wasted. We followed this guy. We thought this guy was gonna be our hope. And look at him, he's hanging on a cross. He's breathing his last breath. There'd be such a sense of despair. Like all that we put our hope in is dying in front of us. And then they watch him die. They watch him breathe his last. And they walk away and they go back to life as they knew it. They think, well, that that didn't work, That, that, that was a waste. Evil has won, except it was in that moment of apparent defeat that God won, that God undid evil, that God began to reverse everything, not by this dramatic show of force, but by this submission of God to death on a cross. And we go, okay, how do we wrap our minds around the wisdom of that? Without the cross, we would not fully know what God is like or how God uses his power. You see, the reality is the cross is, is both something God has done for us, it is also an invitation for us. It's an invitation for us to experience life the way we see it in Jesus. It's an invitation for us to use our power the way we see it done in the person of Jesus. Now, you might go, whoa, 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 that's what Jesus did for us, we don't do that. And and I hear this argument on a regular basis from Christians. No, 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 that's just what Jesus did for us. And certainly, uh, you're not gonna provide salvation for mankind by dying for everyone else. That part is, is clear. But if we separate ourselves from Jesus and go, that's what he did, we don't have to do that, you will miss connecting yourself to the character of God. Now, this is not what the New Testament writers explained. They had met Jesus, they had seen Jesus, and they all tried to follow and act like Jesus. And and let me show you Paul's argument in Philippians chapter two. Paul says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. No, 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 that's what Jesus had. Paul goes, yeah, you should have it. The same mindset Jesus had, you should have that. You should take that on. You go, Okay, what would that look like? Well, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, which I probably would use it to my advantage. He didn't. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is the idea of kenosis, of emptying himself out. He had all power and authority, and he emptied it out. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, he then follows it up with what Jesus did on the cross. Like you wanna know how you can follow God? Have the same mindset of Jesus who humbled himself to go to death on a cross. Now this is such a radical idea that few Christians ever touch it. We go, oh, what would that look like? And what would we do with that? And I don't know how to do that. That's just something Jesus did for us. But I would suggest if we were willing to to truly look to the cross, look to Jesus on the cross and go, what does this show us about the character of God? You would realize something that most Christians never realize. Now, the next thing I'm about to share with you, I wanna encourage every single one of you to write down, and if you've been sleeping this whole time, wake up for the next two minutes, then you can go back to sleep, because uh, the rest of it's not as good as this next part, okay? So this next part, though, I would encourage you to write this down. This is what many Christians never, ever realize, all right? Here's the line. Jesus doesn't teach us how to manage power. He teaches us to give it away. Now this is, uh, maybe first glance, you're like, yeah, big deal, that that makes sense. Or maybe you're like, I don't understand at all what you're talking about. But here's what I would tell you, few Christians ever fully wrap their minds around this idea. And if you do, people will start to call you naive. And like, oh, that's cute that you believe that, right? Because it looks a little bit foolish when you try to apply this idea. And you begin to understand Paul's argument of like, this is not wisdom to the world. No, God's going to teach me how to manage the power I have. And and what you realize is God, God really doesn't do that. God teaches you how to give power away. And, and there's certain positions that you may have where your faith is not going to serve you well because you have to manage massive amounts of power the way the world would ask you to manage it. And you're gonna go, well, if I follow Jesus, how, how do I make sense of this? And many people have found themselves in this struggle. This is why as a church, our mission is about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Not, not, hey, we're gonna make the gospel good news because we're gonna accumulate all the power and all, all the prestige, and then we will dole it out as we see fit. No, 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 we're going to give it away. What we have, we give it away to make the gospel good news for you. This is what we have learned, that, that Jesus is not gonna teach us how to manage it and like, oh, we are the ones who should steward it well. No, we're gonna give it away as we have it so that others can see the goodness of the good news. Now, Miguel Dillatorre says it like this. He says, Christian ethics should first struggle with the question of power and how to crucify power and the privilege that comes with it so that justice and love instead can reign. I would suggest if you're a Christian, you should figure out how do you crucify the power in your life? That does not mean you get rid of it. It does not mean you suddenly have no power. All of us have power. Uh, Just the, the realm that you work in, the relationships that you have, the influence that you have, the decisions you get to make, all of us have power. But as Christians, I would suggest we should learn how to crucify that power, how to give that power away the way we see it modeled in Jesus on the cross. The flip side is, no, 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 I'm gonna manage the power, and what that ends up creating is privilege. You get more. It looks really good for you. You have built up all these things that serve you well. Rather than saying, no, 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 I'm not interested in building more privilege. I'm interested in crucifying the power I have and learning how to give it away for others. And here's what often we, we, we create this uh, false reality of, of power as a zero sum game. There's only so much power. So if I give some of my power away, I have less of it. This is the way the world works, which is why the world, you know, hoards power, accumulates power, needs more power to fight you over this. But as Christians, we don't believe that power is is a zero-sum game, we believe our power comes from God. And if so, we can give our power away and God replenishes it faster than you can give it away. And so you might think, well, if I were to give my power away, uh, then I would have nothing left. And what you'd have left is a reliance on the person of God. And you would be living in the same type of posture that we find in the character of God revealed in Jesus on the cross. This is what we see from him. Now, the older I get, the more I am fascinated by history. And I love reading history. I love reading about those who have lived in other times and other cultures and how do they manage and navigate the, 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 the challenges before them in their generation. But I also love reading the story of the church. How do we get here today? What, what took place? What were the highs and the lows? And, and how do I have better context for understanding what we're dealing with today? Now, if you've ever studied the history of the church, you no doubt have seen, there's a lot of ugliness in that story. There's a lot of things that people have done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, that looks nothing like Jesus. And if I were have to figure out all the history, like what's the common denominator? What's the theme that emerges? Why did some, you know, some people throughout history not look like Jesus as much as others did? What was going on there? It has to do with power. And here's the way I would articulate it. This is what I have seen as I study church history. That Christians have often behaved worse when they had power than when they were persecuted by the power of others. Now this might sound weird, uh, but what I have noticed is that when the church got power in a culture, in a society, they often looked very little like Jesus. And all of a sudden they are managing power and it turns into privilege. But some of the most beautiful expressions of the church, like the first couple centuries of the New Testament church, right? they were persecuted by the power of others. Now, ironically, we don't pray for that. We don't want that to be true today. We pray for more power. But we should take note of the fact that those who've come before us have, have illustrated something that usually when we get the power in Jesus' name, we don't handle it well. And we end up behaving in such a way that does not look like Jesus. So let me ask you, how is your relationship with power? Do you need it? Do you crave it? Do you want more and more of it? Do you have something to prove? And if you got the power, you would show everyone what you could actually do with it. I think of something that C.S. Lewis once said. He said, God plays a great joke on those who would seek after power at any cost. I think of this whenever there's a presidential election (laughs) and I listen to the arguments on both sides. If we just had this power, here's what we would do. You can trust us, we would manage it well. And I just need a little more power and then everything would be great. Everything would be amazing. And I think it's a great joke that God is playing on people who think that power, just more power is what will solve the problem. And this is where you get into the, the ends justify the means. If we are the ones with power, we'll make sure we use it well. You can trust us with the power. And yet it speaks volumes about what you do with it. As my friend Danielle Strickland has said, how you use your power is the measure of your leadership. Whether you manage it and it turns into more privilege for you or whether you give it away for the benefit of others, is the measure of your leadership. It's also the measure of what your foundation of Christianity is built upon, right? Because you're gonna start seeing, if if you build your foundation on the crucifixion of Jesus, on the the character of who God is, you're probably gonna look like that. You're probably gonna give away power in that way. But if your foundation is on anything else, you likely aren't going to use power like that. Why would you? You'd use it the way the world uses it. But for those of us who follow Jesus, take note that our Savior died on a cross to show us his power. He emptied himself. He gave all his power, all infinite power he had. He gave it away. He surrendered it to death on a cross to show us what his wisdom looks like, to show us what his power looks like. And so we should each ask, are we using our power the way Jesus used his power? If you wanna follow Jesus today, this should be a constant question. Am I using the power that I have? Every single one of us, wherever you are, wherever you are watching or listening to this, you have power. Are we using the power that we have the way Jesus used his power? And what have you put in place to encourage you to, to challenge yourself in this way? See, I know that you can have great ideas. and go, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna use power like that. And then you can just go about your day. And if you're honest, you're probably... Producing more privilege for yourself in the way you're using your power. But how do we practice this? See, for me, I know that I need regular things in place around me to push me in this area. Otherwise, I would use my power for me. And so we have an axiom on our staff here that says the best idea wins. That axiom means that if we're trying to decide something, uh, the decision is not made by the highest ranking person in the room. The decision is made by what emerges from the group as the best idea. And so if you sit in on one of our meetings throughout the week, what you'll often hear is someone say, what's the best idea here? And, and we'll start talking it through. And it doesn't matter who comes up with the best idea. It doesn't matter who, like, hey, where are you in the org chart? No, it's like, is that the best idea? And if everyone starts nodding their heads like, yeah, I think that's the best idea, that's what we go with. It's a way for us to surrender the power to go, you know what, I could pull rank here, but that's not using my power the way Jesus used his power. And so we just invite people, hey, what's the best idea here? Now, I wanna encourage you to try this. You can use that line in many different contexts in your life. What would it look like if you were to go to work this week and you were to to start applying the best idea wins? If you started to allow those around you to say, hey, what's your best idea here? And rather than you go, well, I have the power to make this decision, what if you invited others and said, hey, I I could make this decision, but I, I wanna give some of that away. What do you see here? How do you see this? And you invited others in, you gave some of that power away. Here's one of the ways I practice this in my role specifically, is after every Thursday night service, I get done preaching, we go back to my office, and I meet with a number of our staff who's on a little teaching team, and they critique my sermon every week. It is the low point of my week, okay? (laughs) It is not fun. Uh, you know, preaching feels like you, you know, give birth to a child and then afterward they get to tell me how ugly the child is, right? It is like not a fun experience. You feel very vulnerable. He's like, put your soul out there. And they're like, yeah, you know, that one illustration didn't work or whatever. But they get to weigh in in real time immediately after hey, here's what, you know, was confusing or here's a better way to say that or I didn't understand this or you got, you know, you confused me on this. And while I do not enjoy that, At any week, okay, I don't enjoy that, I'm being honest with you, I know that it's incredibly good for me and my soul and it makes the sermon better. And so I try to practice just a simple way to go, you know what, I could just say, hey, who cares, you guys aren't the lead pastor, I get to preach this however I want. That's not a good use of power. So I say, hey, I'm gonna invite you, what do you guys think, after you've heard it, would be a better way to say it. And we all benefit from it, it's a way to practice this. How could you practice that in your job this week? So you know what, I'm gonna invite others in, I'm gonna give some of that away, and it's probably gonna make you feel vulnerable if you're doing it right. And you might not enjoy it, but it is a good practice to go, hey, the best idea wins, what do you guys see here? What if you were to apply this in your family? Hey, the best idea wins, what would that look like? You know what I suspect it might look like? An apology. I don't know about you, but man, it is so incredibly hard to apologize to your family. Uh, I don't know if it's because you're so close or you're you know, there with them all the time, but, but it is like incredibly difficult sometimes for me to apologize to my wife because I just wanna just prove to her that I'm wrong, but Michelle has over and over again modeled for me what it looks like for someone who can apologize easily. She is great at it, I am not, and I'm continually convicted by her ability to quickly say, you know what, I was wrong there, I apologize. And I'm like, yeah, I could do that a lot more than I do that. And so what would it look like if we were the ones who were quick to apologize because we realized, you know what? Your perspective is valid. What you're saying right now, it's valid. And even though I wanna prove my point and even though I think I'm really right on my view here, I value you and I wanna apologize for what I said. I think it would change our families if we were to interact with one another in this way. What about in your your circle of friends? If you were to practice, the best idea wins. What would it look like? Here's an idea. What if you let other people have the last word in your conversation? (laughs) Nervous laughter. That would be hard, wouldn't it? To go, Okay, I just wanna keep this going. And you ever notice how things keep going because neither party is willing to let the other party have the last words? So you're like, oh yeah, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And by the time you get done, you're like, what are we talking about? I lost track a long time ago. But what if we said, you know what? We value the friendship, the relationship more than proving whether or not I'm right, even if I'm convinced that I'm right, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be done with this so that we can protect this. What would that look like? What if we did that on social media? (laughs) Instead of arguing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What if we just said, you know what? I'm gonna let you have the last word. And, And anyone who reads that thread might think that you stumped me, that I had no response to that. And it's okay because I value the relationship more. What would that look like? I had a a guy, you know, come talk to me this morning. He said, you know what? Uh, I I know a guy who he always has the last word in his marriage. I said, really? How's that working? And he said, well, the last word is always yes, (laughs) ma'am. I said, that might work. Uh, But what if we were to really practice? Hey, I'm going to let you have the last word. I'm not going to keep assuming I have to. These are all examples, and there's many more, of giving away power. I could claim this. I could hold on to this, but I'm going to release it. I think we would change the relationships around us if we were to practice this, if we were to live out this power because we see it in the character of God. So let me close with this idea. Is the crucifixion, the power of the crucifixion evident in our lives. If someone who was not a Christ follower saw you and I, would they look at us and go, "I see something bizarre in you. I see this like this power in you that I've never seen anywhere else. Would they see the crucifixion in our lives? Let's go back to our little friend here. What I love about this guy <clears throat> is that you would never expect. That, that story, you would never expect, you know, why that video is so funny is you just don't see it coming. You don't expect this whole thing. One of the lines that's hilarious to me is it regularly takes on prey as large or larger than itself. You know why? Because it's tiny. Everything is as large or larger than a mouse, <laughs> right? And so if it's gonna attack anything, it's gonna be as large or larger than what it is. This is an unlikely story of power. And so is the rise of the church. So is the movement that you and I are a part of. It began with some uneducated women and men from an obscure part of the world who had just watched their leader get murdered in front of them. All the odds were against them. And yet, it was this group of people who would forever change the world, who would live out a power that the world had never seen before, that all the forces of evil could not contain. And they have given us a movement. They've given us a story that we can go back to today and go, what began all this? It's because they had seen something amazing on the cross. They had witnessed what Jesus did and they knew a power unlike any other power the world had ever seen. See, Jesus isn't gonna teach you how to manage power. He's gonna teach you how to give it away. And the story of the church, the story of the movement you and I are part of, are people who have been giving away power for generation after generation after generation. May we live the same power today. And so we're gonna transition now into a a time of communion for our our, our service. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray, and then our band is gonna lead us together in a song. and, And we're gonna invite you to go back to what this is all about. It is all about the crucifixion of Jesus. The fact that Jesus showed his character, showed that he is unlike any other God you will ever hear about. And so we go back and we celebrate it every week in these elements. The bread reminds us of the body, the, the cup reminds us of the blood. At this moment, it's a bizarre moment. You go, why are you celebrating someone's death every week? Because we know this is the wisdom and the power of God. And we know that rather than building up power for our own privilege, we need to learn and we need to be reminded of how to give power away every single day, every single day, and every opportunity we have. And we do this by aligning our character to the character of the person of Jesus as we learn how to have the same mindset, as Paul says, as that of Christ Jesus who was obedient to the cross. And so as we celebrate this together, as we remember what Christ has done for us together, may we learn how to live out the power of God in the unlikely upside down ways that we find on the cross. Let's pray together. Jesus, may we see you today in new ways. May we be reminded that the wisdom that we ought to come up with of how things work, of how things have to be done, of what winning looks like is upside down in your kingdom. And so the moment that your disciples, those women and men who were standing there watching you bleed, the moment that looked like losing was the moment you forever broke the power of evil. It was the moment of victory. And yet sometimes it can be hard to see. And so before we celebrate what would happen a few days later that you would rise again to new life, may we slow down and see your character revealed on the cross. See what you are really like and what you are inviting us to become. May we live with this same power today in our relationships and our spheres of influence and the decisions that we get to make this week. May we give power away because we have seen you model it for us. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.